So welcome to this episode of the podcast IT42IT. My guest is Kerry Millsap, uh, who rings from South Lake outside Dallas. Welcome, Kerry. Thank you, Bones. Thank you very much. So full disclosure, I think that you and I may have met, quote unquote, on, on the very big internal emailing list inside Oracle Corporation called Help Kern. Yes. Yeah. The kernel, the database kernel help list thing. And then we met maybe in 96 or something in Vienna or somewhere. Yeah, 96 or 7. Hmm. Something, I, yeah. I probably have notes that would tell me if, uh, if I click a couple times while you talk, I may just blurt it out. Yeah, and I may certainly not have notes about it. And that's that's just the difference between you and me. <laughs> so, um, uh, first of all, um, could you let the audience know a little bit about your background, and then I would like to talk about instrumentation and correct measurement of performance in IT systems, in, in operational systems. And, uh, and then maybe a little philosophy at the end about where the world is going with regards to measuring and, uh, and becoming a better place. But, but first of all, how did you end up in Southlake? Well, um, what's the old uh, thing I'm supposed to say? I was born in a house my father built. Uh, <laughs> now, let's see. I probably need to go back. I, I graduated college and then went to college again in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. I went to go get a software engineering PhD, so I thought. Um, I made it all the way through the master's degree and was writing some pretty cool. Um, I was a language designer, and so I would design a, a new language and then write a compiler for it. And that ended up being my first job in Colorado Springs at a company called United Technologies who make things like chips for satellites and aircraft engines and all that kind of thing. And um, I noticed that the guy in my department who was a PhD wasn't doing anything differently than what I was doing. And so I decided on the basis of that, that I didn't really want to be a PhD that bad. So I decided to move to Dallas to go to Southern Methodist University and get my uh, master's of business administration. I wanted to get my MBA. So I took the one-year MBA program um, uh, the week after I graduated from that with a second master's degree. I got a job at Oracle Corporation, a company whom I'd never heard of the week prior, and um, took, a, took a position in Dallas with a consulting group within Oracle, and then just stayed here. The um, the very first apartment I had was over by SMU, and then I moved close to the office in uh, Irving, Texas, in an apartment. Figured out one day that I had enough money I should probably buy a house instead of give my money in the form of rent to somebody else and not have any equity. And then uh, met a girl I decided would be good to marry, and she and I lived in Irving for a year or two and then built a house in South Lake, and that's how I got here. Right. And your career in Oracle Corporation, when did that start and how did that develop? Um, it started in September 1989. 
Um, I was hired, I'm pretty sure, because the guy that hired me thought that I was trying to escape my computer science background by going for a business degree. He put me on his financial applications consulting team, which is fine. Um, it doesn't matter how you enter it. You know, it just, you just need to get in. And so um, I proved that I was not really that interested in the general ledger and accounts payable and all that stuff. But I was, I was pretty handy with um, installing software and, and uh, configuring the control characters to go to printers so that invoices will print out correctly and figuring out what a rollback segment is and why we should care and what we should do about the fact that they only get bigger, never smaller. And um, I ended up being the computer science guy on the, on the FinApps team. And my, uh, my role kind of morphed over the first two or three years I was at Oracle into being a specialist that was condemned to um, fix performance of Oracle financial and manufacturing applications throughout the U.S. I say condemned because um, they were really not very sexy applications. They were, they were kind of cool in a few ways, but they were horribly designed in a few other ways. I think uh, Jeff Walker did the design work and he had some great ideas, but he also did a few things that ended up causing a lot of trouble for a lot of people. Um, so anyway, I, my, my career was kind of following around the, the financials and manufacturing apps and trying to fix their performance. And through doing that, um, I was able to buy a nice house and a car and support a family. And finally within Oracle, um, over the course of several years and, we can drill into any of, of it if you want to. But uh, over the course of 10 years at Oracle, 10 years in a week, um, I started off as a senior consultant and I left as a regional vice president in charge of about 100 people whose jobs were all performance related. You know, going and basically fixing bad sales or fixing bad implementations or fixing bad customizations. But it was all focused on on performance the, the whole time I was at Oracle. I seem to remember that your first kind of international fame was a paper you wrote, which might have been presented around 1991 in Miami at the International Oracle User Group Conference mm -hmm. called, called something three-letter thing. Yeah, it was called an, an, not the, but an optimal flexible architecture for Oracle something something. OFA. OFA. Who can say no to, to three positive words? Optimal and flexible and architecture. <laughs> Indeed. But it was about a standard for in installing Oracle, wasn't it? Right, right. All yeah, right. That, that came about because I'd spent a lot of time, there was a... <laughs> There was a machine in, in the Dallas office called Dal UNX01. I think, I think it was called 01 at the end. But it was the pre-sales machine that the pre-sales guys in the Dallas office used to demo the financial applications to uh, prospective customers. And I was to go on a vacation with a few, few guy friends of mine um, down to Cancun. We were to go down to Club Med for a week and just hunt, if you understand what I'm saying. I understand. And, <laughs> and um, when I left, I knew that there were going to be some pre-sales guys who were going to need to reset the machine, do a demo, and then reset the machine. And as much time and effort as I'd put into configuring the machine in a particular way that makes it easy to reset, I didn't want them to mess it up. So 
I wrote down some instructions that were things like, listen, I put all of the data files. Um, we don't want to put them on one, one mount point because then we have a performance problem. But I don't want to just scatter them in random places because then you'll have to run a SQL query to find them. And you shouldn't have to do that. They should be in a place that you can access with a, with a single pattern from the operating system so we can delete them all or back them all up or whatever. And so I wrote this list of configuration um, ideas that I wanted preserved down. I just typed the document and gave it to one of the guys I knew was going to be managing the system. And then I kind of realized, maybe I thought about it while I was on vacation or maybe not, but I kind of realized that this, this is the same list that I really need to be giving my clients before I show up because a lot of times we'd spend half a day kind of negotiating through the list about why number six is a good idea, but the client might not want to do number six and why number nine is a good idea and why the client might not want to do number nine. And I, I, uh, it, it came to me at some point that if I send this list ahead to my clients, if I email this to them, then they're much more receptive by the time they get there. And once I'd presented it on stage and, and uh, written a paper and published it through, I don't even remember how we published things before the internet, but we did. Somehow somebody would get a PDF of something that I had written using uh, Donald Knuth's tech typesetter on an ancient, ancient foldable laptop. Mm -hmm. um, but then I would show up and I would be that guy that wrote that thing that, that everybody had read. And there was much less negotiating because um, there's kind of a argument by authority that, that you can use if, if you walk in and people think that since they've seen your work before they see you, that, that you're somehow more valuable. So I used that um, as, as an entree to really get a lot more work done at customer sites. Mm -hmm. I think it was 1991, late 91 in Miami, the International Oracle User Group Conference. You know, that almost didn't happen. I didn't. How's this that? Is a, this is a weird story. I think I blogged it. Um, so I think there's a record of it out there. I may get some of the facts slightly wrong, but the, the gist will be right. So I, you know, back in those days, we didn't, we didn't have our own laptop computer. We'd go to the office and use the VT320s there. And so if you wanted to make a slideshow, there was actual slides. There were 35 millimeter slides, those little, those little cellulose or celluloid or whatever they're called, um, film that, mm -hmm. that are kind of embedded in that heavy cardstock. And they're, I guess they're 35 millimeters across. Yeah, yeah. And you, it's, you'd, it's 22, 24 times 36. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you'd have to make these things by drawing on paper and then federal expressing an envelope to a, a man and his wife named Guy and Karen Lucian. I don't know why I remember those names, but you'd send to Guy and Karen, you'd send your drawings, and then they would FedEx you a box with a carousel that has all these slides in it in the right order. And oh, the Kodak carousel slide yeah. thing. Don't drop the carousel because then you're going to spend the next four hours trying to remember what order the slides go in. And so you'd look through these things, you'd look at, at them through the light, you know, with the light behind it, and you'd hold it up, you know, to the ceiling to see what the slides said. If you're lucky, you've got a projector in the office, so you can actually see it big. And then you go, oh, no, 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 no. This thing needs to be orange like that because I'm trying to show how this and that are similar. And then you'd send it back, you know, and it's like a $35 um, one-way trip to get the stuff to Guy and Karen. And then when you got the slides back, you know, it would cost like sixteen or $20,000 for them for all the labor that they've done. 
And I don't know what they used to do the artwork and everything, but they did quite nice work. You know, you'd come back, your databases look like molybdenum magnets with shading on them the right way. And they did quite good work, but it was expensive as hell. And just one little edit was a FedEx round trip. It would take two or three days. And so anyway, I did all this investing, um, made the slides, made the, made the talk, had done talks in college and stuff, but I'd never done anything to an audience this big for, for you know, for real in, in a professional world. And two weeks before I'm supposed to go, I got all my slides ready, the tens of thousands of dollars that it took to make them and everything. And I get a letter in the mail and, I, and it's from the um, Tarrant County court system. I get this letter in the mail and I open it up with, uh, with a letter opener and pull the letter out. And I've been selected to do jury duty on, <laughs> on morning. Guess what morning it was, Monk? Yeah, the OFA morning. Yeah, it was. Guess what time it was? No. After you adjust, after you adjust for, for the time zone, it was at exactly the same time and date as my presentation was going to be in Miami. This was a conspiracy. I mean, people didn't want order in the universe. <laughs> I found it. Um, I get upset about things like that. I, I think I remember getting upset about that one. And um, I wrote a nice letter really, really quickly to the judge at, at uh, Tarrant County and told him, listen, man, I'll show up three or four times if you want me to, to pay you back for the one that I, that I really don't want to want to go. And happily, I got a response back in time saying, yeah, you can do it on, you know, two weeks later or something. But man, it tightened me up like well, oh, the, 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 there's also this. There's also this perspective on it, namely, if he had insisted that you show up, you would have convicted that guy. <laughs> you know, you would have been so mad. I might have been in a booth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the irony. They would have dismissed me. You know, ten minutes into my talk. Yeah, exactly. Because they would have sensed that. Yeah. Okay, so OFA was sort of your first, shall we say. Um, smell or, or sense of of uh, quote unquote fame or at least technical that, being that known made me, mm. that made me slightly more famous than the one i had done before that in school called linkos the linkos. language of cosmic intercourse linkos really? is the language yeah linkos is the language that we put up on uh, the voyager spacecraft that carl sagan helped invent and it, it's the language that we are someday possibly going to communicate for the first time with uh, extraterrestrial intelligent beings. And you helped create that? No, no. I just uh, explained to people about the language and how it works. And, you know, th that, that was my presentation. That was my big claim to fame before the UFA. <laughs> I didn't know that. Anyway. Yeah, you can edit um, that out. I do remember also to uh, to keep talking about some of the, the papers I remember that you presented while I was also at Oracle. I was at Oracle from 90 to 2000. I believe you were there from 89 to 98, 99 or something. 99. Yeah, September 98 or September 89 to September 99. Yeah, so it, we were both pretty accurately 10 years at Oracle. But mm. uh, you also did a a paper on data warehousing. No, that wouldn't uh, be. 
Uh, I think we called was, it very, very large databases. Yes, it was VLDB, but I was never a data warehousing guy. Maybe in the last 10 years I can, I can yeah. lay some claim to it. But, and but in yeah. that paper, <clears throat> you addressed something which I, I really liked uh, back then because we were discussing back then whether a very large database, a VLDB, was either, and, and back then that was a thing. We had VLDB societies. We had VLDB mm -hmm. this and VLDB that. Um, uh, we discussed whether uh, VLDB was a question of a lot of transactions or a large size or many users. And eventually, I think, uh, and I'm probably simplifying it too much, but you, you ended up saying in your paper that a VLDB is a database that stresses the hardware it runs on. Yeah, yeah, the, you got the dimensions exactly right. There's like a transaction count, there's a data volume, and, and a user count, I think, were the three main um, parameters, I, I guess you would say. And people kept arguing, is it is it uh, this many gigs or, or that many users? And, and basically, we just kind of landed on, well, it's that, that number is evolutionary. It, it goes up every year, but basically your VL in the VLDB uh, term, if if basically your situation relative to the hardware capacity that exists today is is uncomfortable. If you've got to be super clever to, to cope with the capacities that are available today, then 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 you can claim you're very large. But you know there were some guidelines, and it, it had to be like ten thousand users and and a hundred gigs, or I forget what, but. The ridiculously preposterously small numbers to what what you would expect to be able to handle today. Yeah, I mean, when when I left the bank uh, in '90, before joining Oracle, um, I think we had about the biggest database in Denmark, and it was like six gigabytes or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which Isn't that probably, funny? We have we have videos yeah. longer than that now. We do. It, uh, six gigabytes would fit on my glasses or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of your many wedding rings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, um, so basically you leave Oracle as, as uh, while, while you were leading the 100-person band called the Special Performance Group, SPG. System Performance Group. System Performance Group, thank you very much. Um, and formed a company called Hot Source, Hot SOS, uh, based on, on both, you know, call us if you need help, and I also need, uh, also like uh, Hot Source, um, <laughs> Chili Source, right? And yeah, I left. Mm -hmm. I left Oracle because I, I, I knew from. See, I had two jobs. One was this SPG thing, which was simply eighty-five people responsible for fixing problems. But the other fifteen of the hundred were uh, practice builders, which it's it's kind of one of those groups in a consulting company that sometimes doesn't last long because they're not a direct revenue generating group but i had this group for a couple of years that were supposed to be able to to make a kit that if say somebody in in paraguay wanted to have their their own spg um 
this group of 15 would be responsible for creating the compensation plans, the training plans, the revenue sharing plans, the budget templates, the hiring templates, the, all the things you would need to just add water. And then you too can have a practice just like the SPG group, you know, SPG in, in the United States. And the thing that we keep running, running into over and over again was I had about, out of my 85, I had about five that I could trust to send to Singapore. And I knew that they'd be able to fix the problem in a remote land with very little communication. I knew that I would hear from them what I needed to hear. I knew that they would ask for help when they needed help. And I knew that they would eventually solve the problem. And it seemed like every time that somebody from the other 70 people or 80 people or so would graduate into that group, one of the five would get married and can't travel anymore or I'm sick of it and I can't do it anymore. So I had this problem of trying to grow the top of my pyramid, if you'll let me call it that. Um, and everybody else did too. And the reason was there was really no good training for making smart college graduates, for example, into decent performance optimization people. It was just kind of a, well, the algorithm for making a person like that is give them about seven years and send them out with your best people and they'll pick it up. Well, I didn't feel like that was particularly uh, high productivity way of of making those folks. And I thought, you know, I can, I can create a method and uh, instruction and maybe software to go with it that'll make like normal smart people able to do the stuff that, that everybody thinks takes seven years to create today. So that was the big idea that I thought I could leave Oracle and earn a living executing. But to go back a little, how, how did you end up on the path of performance because it seems that with the OFA and other things you were also doing structure and uh, and and systematics yeah well see they interrelated because a, a lot of places that I would go in the early 1990s they would say um, yeah our system is just way too slow and we've got these really long latency IOs and I would I would find out well how is your database laid out and they would have you know, I forget the numbers, but I'll make some up for, for illustration. They would have maybe uh, a, a, a one gigabyte disk drive that could handle 60 IOs per second. Um, and, and they would have all their database files on this, and they would have all of their workload accessing those database files on that one 60 IOPS, 60 IOs per second disk, and their application might ask for 100 IOs per, per second at peak. And so, well, the solution to that is we want to have two or three or four or five disks that we can distribute workload across instead of, do you remember, the, the, the advice from Oracle, the, def, the default installer would install your data files in Oracle Home. Yes, they would. And I remember writing, writing things to people like, listen, um, when you get a toolbox and you build a birdhouse, you don't put the birdhouse in the toolbox with the tools. <laughs> you put the birdhouse someplace outside where there's space. <laughs> and it's the same with Oracle. You put your tools in Oracle Home, that's the toolbox. But your birdhouses and your cars and your and your big houses and those things go outside. They go they you spread them uniformly across the a farm of drives, not just put everything on one drive. <laughs> and so, well, but how can we do that? You know, we tried doing that, but we lost some files. We actually I would go places where they're, you know, the Oracle has a notion called a temporary table space where sorts and things get done. And a temporary 
table space has temporary table space data files. And people would see the word temporary and they would think, oh, I can put the data files for those on slash TMP. Yeah. Where, where they get erased every time you reboot. Yeah. And so performance was was intertwined with structure back in those days because the structural default recommendations of Oracle actually painted you into the corner where you were destined to have a performance problem. And to fix that performance problem, you'd have to spread things across multiple drives. But in order to spread things across multiple drives, you'd have to have some sort of a sensible organization policy that enables you to do things like, hey, I want to back up all my files. What's the Unix regular expression, the Unix glob expression that allows me to uh, re refer to all my files in one command and things. And mm -hmm. that, that was the... That was the beauty, I guess, of the OFA was to give you some advice about, well, if you put things in these places, then you can you can really simplify your, your operational cost of of managing and and fixing an Oracle database. Yeah. And as you said, spreading your IO across drives. <laughs> A pretty good idea at all times. Yeah, but it was strange. It was just, it was an alien idea to a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember. Was, uh, let's not get into RAID right now because then I just get upset and I start yelling about RAID 5. So let's, yeah. let's try to keep that out of the conversation for the moment. Um, yeah. You started up. Uh, hot SOS with, with a friend of yours in 99, 98, 99. Mm -hmm. All right. 99. And you ended up becoming the godfather of performance tuning, performance optimization, and, and writing uh, you know, the best the, the best selling book about Oracle performance and all that kind of stuff. But but did that just happen or did it happen gradually oh it was it was all too gradual um jeff holtz is the co-author of the book you were talking about called optimizing oracle performance and uh the my job one for the first two or three years of hot sauce was to to go places with jeff let him do his brilliant thing and then ask him questions like why did you just do that because the other day, in the similar circumstance, you did this. What's the parameter that caused you to go seven instead of four today? And so, basically, I took something that was... Um, are you familiar with the term AI? Yeah. Artificial intelligence? Well, this was just the I. <clears throat> yeah, so you're, you're trying to figure out Jeff as a service. Exactly. This was just Jeff being very I. And, and not necessarily, though being able to explain himself. And he was, um, he was patient enough to let me basically interview a method out of him. And it's not to say he didn't learn. I think if he were on the call today with us, he's next door, by the way. But I think if you're on the call right now, he would say, oh, no, 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 I learned a ton during that process. But I very much view him as the genesis for most of the ideas. And, and, and I was kind of the, the Socrates character who, who didn't really teach much by saying new stuff, but teach taught maybe, um, by asking the right questions at the right time, that kind mm -hmm. of, thing. Mm -hmm. and kind of my, one of the things I feel like I'm fairly good at is, is structuring things and writing them down. And that was really my job. So we, we did a lot of engagements. I remember having, uh, printouts of our, of our course material that we would lay on a table and just over and over and over just, every week, 
every week, changing something about the order in which we explain stuff to people so that it would make more sense and, and trying to figure out, you know, what we've got six stories to try to convince people of this one point. Do we tell all six of them? Do we only tell the best one? Do we tell two? Do we just, things like that? Just, just took, it took a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll notice the book I think has a, a copyright date or a publication date of 2003 and that 99, you know, there wasn't much of 99 left when I left Oracle, but the year 2000, 2001, 2002, those are three years filled with us going from site to site, fixing problems and trying to write down the method by which we found and fixed those problems in a flexible enough way that the, that the person reading what we wrote would be able to fix problems that we hadn't yet seen before. And so it was a, it was a lot of work. It was fun. Um, but it, you know, like, like a lot, like most work, it is fun when you succeed a few times, but it, it was grueling too. It was just, it was a lot of work. Was it fun? It was fun, but it was grueling too. It was a lot of work. You can edit that out, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I like, I like working and especially I like succeeding at the end of doing work. Right. Um, you end up uh, with a performance method that includes measuring basically where time is spent. How did that come about? Well, the power of friends. Um, You told me that there was something new in the database. I asked, what is that? You explained to me what this weight interface thing is. Um, Anil Kolk, our mutual friend, whom I haven't seen in way too long, um, answered some questions for us at your event in the year 2000 that really opened up my eyes. But there were, there were really three, I'll say four things, four things that kind of converged on us. One is a book by John Bentley called More Programming Pearls. I'm looking at it on my bookshelf right now. Chapter one of More Programming Pearls was about profilers and about the importance of when you write a program, it's nice to have another program that you can use to show you where the time got spent in that first program. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had a profiler for Oracle? But we didn't. We had a thing called TK Prof, and the prof was meant to stand for profiler, but it didn't go to the level that John Bentley explained. Um, there was this latent knowledge in my head of uh, the, the so-called weight interface that you told me about. I had a guy on my team named Virag Saxena who um, is the first person in my group in the U.S. to go off and use this information and the weight interface, just so that everybody knows what I mean when I say it, um, is, is a bunch of print statements inside the Oracle kernel that every time an operating system call or a database call completes, this print statement writes to some place. Now, figuratively speaking, it's not necessarily a print statement in all cases, but the, the writes to someplace um, all the time without turning anything on is, and this is back in, you know, 1996, 97 timeframe, um, the weight interface would, would aggregate when calls ended, how long did they take to certain V dollar views inside the database? And they would, they would just aggregate this stuff. So at any point you could see how many seconds have I spent doing DB file sequential read in this session over the past 15 minutes. And you could write queries like that. 
But if you turn on this tracing mechanism, then literally these values will be printed to a trace file. And the weight interface is simply the addition of instrumenting the system calls that the Oracle kernel makes. So the P reads and the P writes and the read V's back in the old days and the sem ops and sem time dops, all those calls that Oracle makes get, get timing recorded by them and they get written someplace. So that's, that's what I mean by the weight interface. Now, I think a, a long time ago, 10 minutes ago, when I started talking about <laughs> conversion, so I knew about this weight interface. Um, I had this guy, Virag Saxena, who'd been using it. I had you who'd been telling me about it. And I had John Bentley um, writing about profilers. And then this other thing, I may have gone up to five now. Another feature is a guy named Eli Goldrat, who talks about the only way to optimize anything is to figure out what is it we're really trying to optimize. And that sounds trivial, but in our jobs, people tend to get it wrong. They think they're supposed to be optimizing a computer, but what we really need to be optimizing is the business using that computer. What we want is, is more net profit, more cash flow, more return on investment for having a computer. And so people would come to us in SVG and say things like, hey, it hurts when I post. When we, when we do our month in close, the posting process takes 40 hours. And so instead of going in and saying, well, let me look at all of your ratios, we would go in and say, well, let's go in and, and look how, how posting spends time. And if there's any wasted time, we'll take the wasted time out and posting will go faster. And who cares what your ratios say after that? So all that stuff converged and, and the, the, the crucible where we cooked it and finally came up with something real was the, the Miracle Masterclass that you hosted, that I talked at, um, where Anil Kolk came and we asked him the simple question, if we add up the the wait times and the CPU time that's recorded in the trace data, will they add up to the elapsed duration of the database calls? And he said, yes. And that's the, the, the mathematical equation that we needed for Jeff and me to go off and write a proper profiler for Oracle. Yeah, so it, it basically started out with the rather simplistic that response time is equal to service time plus wait time, which is the, the queuing theory thing. But of course, you have perfected it much since. I mean, I, I guess if you'll let me say something here, um, and you've been gracious enough not to stop me yet. Um, the R equals SW thing, it's funny. It looks like the queuing theory formula, but it's not the queuing theory formula at all. It's, it's okay. not at all. all right. It's just simply the response time is equal to this <laughs> kinds of calls plus that kinds of calls. That's what, that's what the wait events are. They're just other kinds of calls. They're system calls as opposed to database calls. So well, but, well, but, but Anjo, Anjo when, when he came up with that idea, desperate as he was when he was based in in Japan and, Japan, and trying yeah. to figure out why, why Docomo was, was not running uh, very well. He had been taught about queuing theory in high school in Holland. And, and that was the, uh, uh, the algorithm he came up with. So that's why it was, you know, simplistic to begin with. And then later, I, I guess you and others generalized it into, well, response time, of course, consists of these calls and those calls. Interesting. Yeah, I did not. I mean, it, it, it makes total sense now because every Dutch guy I've ever seen has had some queuing theory experience, it seems like. Um, so it makes sense. 
Yeah, it's it's part of the curriculum in there in 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 one of the uh, branches of their high school system. Um, so yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of an eye opener, I guess. It was the, I don't know, it was the foundation for 30 years of, well, 20 years, I guess, of, <laughs> of being mostly on my own, professionally speaking. <laughs> We've been doing this stuff for 30 years, counting the 10 at Oracle. Really? Yeah. Yeah, you and me both. Oh, so I'm not sure about you, but I've been shouting in the wilderness because when I when I when I go out there, everybody knows about it. Nobody's using it, and all the all the young ones they go what? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I guess that's the cycle we're destined to repeat. <laughs> I think so. I I'm think sure so. there were some old guys that we didn't listen to when we were that age. I know because because when I when I started out with this this thing, some of the uh, the people with experiences from uh, the real mainframe systems, the managed mainframe systems, they would just look at us in this weird way, which of course I didn't understand. And and uh, many years later, I found out that they were wondering why we didn't just use these methods already, because. Mm -hmm. Basically, in the mainframe environment, they built it in in, in the 80s. Um, yeah, it's more fun to invent it ourselves, though, right? Every generation has to do that. And a generation means, I guess, every two years or something. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie, um, how, how, how perfect is your and Jeff's tool? these days in uh, in in telling where the time is spent and what what use cases do you do you love to talk about when talking about being able to tell people where time was spent with their uh, with their IT business and user functions what what a lovely just absolutely perfect question thank you I'll, t I'll tell you a story or two. Um, so we invented this stuff because the user interface that we wanted that didn't exist at the time was, um, hey, I know all our ratios and I don't care. What I want to know is why when we run payroll, does it take three hours instead of 15 minutes? And so our parameter is, okay, I get it. Payroll's slow. We'll measure payroll. We'll figure out what the problem is. So we built that tool. That thing that we built was basically a replacement for TKProf. One one time, um, one of our mutual friends asked me about what percentage of of uh, what what our profiler technology does does TKProf not do, and I said oh, about probably eighty five percent. I think TKProf <laughs> leaves about eighty five percent of the data behind. Um, and for a long time, we had a we had a tool that could that could eat a trace file and tell you where the time went. And we did some really cool things with that. We fixed a lot of payrolls and, and uh, overnight batch jobs and all kinds of things with that. These days though, there seems to be less interest in individual 
Well, in bringing us the names of individual programs that, that people want fixed, or if they know the program that they want fixed, they don't know how to trace it because tracing is still kind of a tricky thing. It's easy to turn trace on and turn it off, but it's less easy to turn it on for the right session at the right time and then turn it off for the right session at the right time. Because what we want in the end is a perfect trace file that tells us exactly what the thing we're interested in did, no more and no less. And it gets really tricky when there's connection pooling. So now your thing that feels like a unit of work actually might have been seven different connections in the pool doing different things. Or it might have been parallelization, you know, because you're querying a table that's got parallel degree four. And so suddenly now you have nine trace files for that piece of your thing that you're waiting, you know, your experience that you're waiting for. So in recent years, we've attacked that problem as well. And, and today, our pretty standard advice that, uh, that works really well, by the way, is we tell people, listen, we've got Fortune 100 companies that are running traces full-time for hours and hours and hours in their production applications. And they've got these really expensive, really meticulous measurement tools where they can prove that the tracing is not causing a performance problem of its own. And so they'll trace six hours of stuff, <clears throat> and then their Dynatrace will tell us that, hey, there was a, there was an, an ABC transaction at 14.02.03, and it lasted until 14.02.07, and it's not supposed to last four seconds. And we have tools that enable us to find it really quickly. Tens of thousands of trace files, doesn't matter. We can find that thing that happened at, at 14.02.03 or whatever I said, and we can isolate it. And even if that transaction is spread across multiple trace files because of connection pooling or multi-threaded server or whatever else, we can put them together into a single trace file that we can then feed that tool that we've had for 20 years. And so we can find things really quickly. And lately we found, for example, there was a company that had uh, intermittent problems with something that normally took less than a second, but occasionally would take 20 plus seconds. Um, so we had them trace their whole entire instance for a whole day. And I think they had six occurrences of this thing running in 20 plus seconds that's supposed to run in sub-second. They told us what time they occurred. We found them. We found out that each one was waiting on an event called log file sync. We were able to use our own tools to figure out what time did these log file syncs happen. And then we found out that, ah, at that precise time, the log writer, which we also have a trace file for because we traced everything, at that exact point in time, the log writer spent 25 seconds doing a 2K IO, a 2K write, a 2K log file parallel write call. And we could tell like a, like a big puzzle with a bunch of pieces falling together that all four of these programs were caused by events that were just like that. And of course, somebody can know that and then go back and say, oh, I can see it in the V$ event histogram that that happened. But the problem is, yeah, you can also see a lot of other outliers that happened in V$ event histogram, and they didn't have any bearing at all on these programs that normally take sub-second time, but sometimes take 25 seconds. So the really cool thing that we can do is even if you can't target your tracing, we can uh, by, you know, you just trace the whole instance. We don't care. Mail us 10,000 trace files. We don't care. Our tool's fast enough. We can munch through 10,000 trace files in a few minutes. And we can find anything we're looking for. And in, in the level of detail of every single call that every program made, it's there. 
and nothing else gives that capability and or that granularity. So <clears throat> I'm trying not to sound too excited because I'm I'm from Denmark. Um, way back in in the early zeros and maybe o two or three o four, I was talking to a CIO of a of a major company here in Denmark, which means they have more than, say, 42 employees. And she said when I was done explaining all about the weight interface and, and all the fantastic things, she said, well, you know, the our our uh, IBM mainframe system has got, has got that already, so it enabled them back then to discover that a certain batch job had taken half an hour longer that night than usually, and then discover that that was because it spent more time than usual on uh, network uh, communication things. And mm-hmm. that was because another job had been introduced which hogged the network at that point mm-hmm. in time. And so it sounds to me as if you have actually reached that kind of insight or that ability to see those kind of of connections that is correct wow and that's that's a place where it i jeff and i are starting to uh to do some research into ai and machine learning because for example um it's it's easy for us to imagine a program that would take um 50 gigabytes of trace data and then just shred through it looking for patterns. And for example, see, ah, this SQL statement followed by four executions of that SQL statement, you know, an A followed by four Bs, followed by six Cs, followed by two Bs, followed by eight Cs. Well, here's an A followed by a different number of Bs and Cs, but I can tell they came from the same program. It's just executing a different number of iterations of each loop. So, it's easy for us to imagine a program that recognizes, ah, these are from the same program. This one took 20 seconds. That one took 80 seconds. It'd be nice to cluster those two together in a tool and maybe go find the 42 different executions of that program and see what was the fastest one? What was the slowest one? Why was the fastest one faster than the others? Why was the slowest one slower than the others? And we've got this profiling tool so that we can actually look and see the details if we want to compare two of them. you know. Did this use a different plan? Did it have different IO latencies? Did it did it execute the same number of reads, but they were longer? Or did it execute more reads because there was more input data? We can see all those things now, but it just takes time uh, manually to fish through. So with things like uh, shared SQL IDs, right? We And I'm not talking about the ones that Oracle generates. I'm talking about the ones that we create by parsing the SQL that we get in the trace file and then figuring out, oh, you know what? This statement and that statement could have been shared, uh, but they weren't. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, th- those kinds of things allow you to cluster your data. And then, and then what you do sounds more like data science than, than DBA. And so I think that's the, the future um, to the extent that, you know, we'll continue to have Oracle customers interested in learning things like that. So are you recommending? That's not a fair question. I'll try again. Does it make sense these days? to trace everything always. It, 
It's certainly technically feasible to do so. It it calls into the game, you know, you have to manage your data volumes of trace files. How do you retire trace files and things like that? So there'd have to be some tools built to do it. Um, But fundamentally, before you answer, yes, I'd like to do that, you have to ask the question, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to do that? Yeah, and I think that for most people, they wouldn't want to trace everything all the time. But I do advocate and, and I've got presentations about this, and I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to get the word out, but it's difficult getting to developers who can make the decisions to do the stuff that I'm advocating. But one thing that you really need to do is, let's, let's say that your company builds something that they sell. So your, your software needs to be able to book orders, pick orders, ship orders, and bill for orders, and probably take return merchandise authorizations or something. So there's this core set of functions that if your app stops providing in in good time, your business will suffer. And so I absolutely recommend that every day or at least every week, those, you know, some random executions of those should be traced so that we can, you know, have a baseline in the bank that if one of those, you know, suddenly picking an order takes longer than it should, we can go back to last week when it was working fine and compare how it spent its time with how we spend our time this week. And then we can go, oh, I get it. There's a different plan. Or, wow, why why are the IOs so much slower now? Or, wow, why suddenly do we have mutex this, pin that as an event when we didn't used to? Well, you know from having done this how much easier it is to, to say, why, you know, what would it take to make this look like that than it is to just be handed handed the bad one saying what's wrong. Right, well, the, the, to... the, 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 the philosophical and, and real technical problem is that if if you have um, say a bastion that, that suddenly runs way too slow and you're trying to recreate it, there will never be a comparable trace file to 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 what happened before. Yeah. Because, but there could because be. circumstances change all the time, unless I guess you change, uh, you, you, you trace constantly or, well, or at least occasionally. Or please, please, please discuss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, or at least occasionally. And you know, I'm not saying if you book 10,000 orders a day, you need to trace all of them, but maybe you want to trace one every hour. Maybe you want to trace one every day. Um, maybe you want to trace more than that. And, and there are ways to build your application to make it easy to do that. And I've got, I've got slides up on SlideShare that, 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 explain to you how to write an application that does that. It's not that hard. Um, but it, it just comes down to the fundamental understanding that, look, when we built software to book orders, pick orders, ship orders, and bill for orders, we did that to help our business. It would also help our business to know how long does it take to pick an order? How long does it take to book an order? And if you think about that as a, as a feature that helps the business, well, it's something a developer can go make. And Oracle makes it really easy to do that. Because Oracle's got this whole tier that's kind of a black box, and it and it shines a light in there. It says, "Hey, listen, if you just enable this thing, we'll tell you everything that happens inside of here. We'll tell you every read, every write, every latch acquisition, everything, all of it." And so, when you choose Oracle, you're choosing a product that gives you a huge diagnostic and observability set of features. Most people don't use them, and that's you know that's where I come in. I can show you how to use what you've already paid for because you don't have to buy a pack to use these things. They're they're there. They're there in XE, and they're there in Exadata, and they're there everywhere in between. 
but you might want to trace more than you, than you are now. You might not want to trace everything all the time, but there may be some days where you think, you know what, tomorrow that stupid damn problem is going to happen that everybody hates and by God, I'm going to catch it. I'm just going to trace for six hours and I'll bet you we find two or three. It's almost like neutrino gathering if you've been reading about that um, in the mm -hmm. physics. Oh, yeah. The, the deep minds and things. Yeah. Yeah. It may not happen very much, but if you collect enough data, you'll find a couple. Is it is it actually feasible for most um, clients these days to basically, say, collect data in a two-week round-robin fashion, constantly trace data? Probably. It takes a little bit of experience to figure out what your application generates and in terms of uh, megabytes or gigabytes per hour. Um, depends on how the app's built, you know, and it, and it depends on what you trace. I, I, I love having the so-called binds equal true uh, parameter when I trace, but I recommend to people who are tracing for the first time to always use binds equal false. Because if your application has 256 placeholders in your SQL, 256 bind variables, and it processes one row at a time, well, each bound value writes about five lines, about 500 bytes of trace data. And that's 10 write calls, the way Oracle writes trace data. They write twice as often as they should because they write the new line in a separate write call. So if you take five times two times 200, that's how many bind variables you have. That's a lot of lines to be written for each row that gets processed. And we certainly don't want anybody to trace with, with binds equal true before we know that their app doesn't do that. Because if their app does that and they turn on tracing, then suddenly things that took a minute will take two minutes. And we don't want for tracing to have any performance, any noticeable performance impact at all. So we usually start out with binds equal false, weights equal true, plan stat equal to first execution. So you don't get too many execution plans in your trace file. And then um, you, you typically, you know, if you, if you trace your application once, you get a good idea for how many gigabytes per hour is this thing going to throw out. And then, of course, you want to make sure that if you're writing to the same directory where your uh, alert.log file is, you want to make sure you don't run out of space because if Oracle can't write to alert.log, it'll it'll stall the database. So yeah. there are just a few things you need to know. It's not that complicated. Um, we've got a good book that mentions all of them and describes the rationale behind all of them. Um, and there are just a few procedures you'd have to implement in order to in order to literally trace full time. Wow. Guess what? Um, you might want you might not mm -hmm. want to write all of it to one file system. <laughs> to hark back to 19, 1990. Yeah, right? I was going to say, you, you, you might want to spread it out over yeah, several you might want an array. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe even a redundant array of inexpensive desks. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so you have, throughout this endeavor, focused solely on Oracle. Is that correct? The center of what we've done has been Oracle, but you know, if you write a Java program that connects to Oracle and the, pro and the problems in the Java, then we dive in there. If the problem's in C-sharp, then we dive in there. Most, most of my time spent typing on a computer has been, I don't know. I, at one point, I could say writing source code, and none of it hardly in SQL or PL-SQL. So I've got a weird relationship with Oracle. The systems I look at are almost always Oracle. 
Um, and that's what we've got the tools for, right? Because Oracle Trace Data is a special, a special language in and of itself. But one thing I'd really love to do is to take a newer technology and instrument it in, in the right way. Oracle made a lot of great decisions, um, but there's some things that I would do differently if, if I were building Oracle from scratch. I could definitely make Trace Data lighter weight and more informative at the same time. Would you still use the basic uh, C structs and uh, and uh, the kind of the way they built the X dollar tables and 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 things like that? Probably not. Um, <clears throat> at least maybe not. The yeah, I, I just don't like the aggregation. I, I don't know if you remember. I know you remember actually. Um, but the, uh, the MySQL folks approached all of us 10, 15, 20 years ago. And one of the things they asked me was, should they replicate the, the V$ schema from Oracle? And I told them, please don't. I mean, if you want to do that someday, go ahead. But don't, don't let that be the first thing you do. Uh, the first thing you do needs to be a linear sequential record of experiences that people have using the system, not an aggregated um, blob of data that, that represents a bunch of experiences all mushed together. Actually, James Mall and I had a meeting with the uh, with the MySQL guys uh, here in, in Copenhagen, the two founders, and they refused to 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 make a weight interface because it would uh, it would impact performance of the uh, of the database. I remember Tom Kite speaking at Oracle Open World one time. He had a, his typical two or five thousand people audience, and uh, <laughs> somebody somebody stood at the mic, and that takes courage, by the way. I I could talk to a five thousand person audience for an hour, no problem, but put me in a at a at a mic on the floor, in a room full of five thousand people, I would be so nervous. I don't think I could talk. But this guy asked Tom a question. He said, hey, Tom, you know, Oracle has all these V dollar and X dollar things. How much, how much performance degradation do you feel like those cause to a normal Oracle application? And Tom looked at the ceiling and kind of scratched his chin a little bit. And he said, uh, I estimate probably negative 10% or maybe more. Maybe negative twenty percent or negative thirty, and he just kind of <laughs> left left it to you know waft over the audience. What would a negative answer look like? And he yeah. said, "Let me explain." I know that sounded funny, but let me explain what I mean by negative ten percent. He said, "What I think, what I'm trying to say is that I think that Oracle is at least ten percent faster today than it would have ever been if it didn't have all the V dollar next dollar stuff in it, because those things have have." instructed our own kernel developers as to where they should apply their attention to make the maximum benefit for a fast database to, to run applications quickly. And he said, without that interface, there's no doubt that Oracle would be slower today than it is now. So that's yeah. what negative. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a good answer, actually. Um, do you see any other worlds, IT worlds, apart from Oracle, where instrumentation is being used in a in a good way. Well, you know the 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 first I probably heard of the whole instrumentation philosophy was probably in business school. You know, I'd I'd written compilers and stuff at U, at United Technologies for a while, and I don't think I knew about 
this until I went to SMU to business school, but we, we heard about an elevator company. I think it was Otis. I think it's Otis elevators that there was a Harvard business school case that we had to do in class. And, and they had a competitive advantage over other elevator makers because they instrumented their elevators to check for things so that a tech would be dispatched to go out to do maintenance on an elevator at 11 o'clock some night in some high rise. The next morning people would come in and nobody would have ever seen an elevator maintenance person unless they had been in around midnight the night before. And what's going on is that the elevator would have like voltage sensors or current draw sensors, amperage sensors, I guess. And if a motor drew more amps than normal, then that might be an indication that a pulley needs more grease, for example. So they, they actually had software way back in the 80s that would would phone the corporate office and say, hey, you know, elevator six and bay five of first tower and whatever city, you know, needs a tech tomorrow night and they need to bring this and, and a replacement wheel. And, you know, it, it would basically tell their their repair guys to go repair the elevator before a human ever even noticed that it needed it. And kind of the second thing that, that reminded me of that was uh, – Again, when I moved to Dallas from Colorado, I bought a, a new car. I got a the 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 bottom of the line BMW. It's a very nice car, but it's the lowest level of a BMW that you could get. And um, it had this thing. I didn't know the name of it at the time, but it's the it's the OBD onboard diagnostics uh, capability that all cars today have. But you could basically plug a computer onto your car, and your car would rat on itself and tell you where it had, you know, park, spark plug number three uh, failed to fire, you know, at 4.13 on Wednesday. And uh, those those things were inspiring to me as well because they, they're obviously software. And it just, it alerted me to the fact that there's, there are different ways that software can serve people. You know, you think of software like, oh, you use software to design the car. You use software to sell the car, to make a record of the invoice and, all that, but no, there's actually a computer in the car that will communicate with the computer outside the car to tell the, the serviceman, you know, what to replace, you know, when it's time for the alternator to be replaced or, or whatever. I, I just thought that was fascinating. And all those things really inspired the, the idea of, of instrumenting Oracle the way we do. So <clears throat> the, revolution quote unquote in the oracle world that that we've that we've been part of um dispelling the whole idea of of using all these ratios and guessing whether you should tune this or that uh, parameter and, and that thing and replacing it with something more scientific that as we've been discussing in the last hour um do you see any in a, in a in a in a in a system that is not instrumented to show where time is spent? Do you see any any uh, positive use cases? Any any way to use all those reams of data, all those ratios, for any useful purpose? And I'm I'm talking, for instance, all operating systems these days, basically not all, but but pretty much all. I'm talking 
most yeah. most database systems. I'm talking hell. I'm talking most of the IT world. Yeah, you're you're proposing that most of the IT world is not instrumented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it brings it brings several thoughts to mind. One is a is a term that I've seen applied to uh, teaching of statistics in in math class. But the term that I ran across one time that's intriguing is tyranny of the computable. Mm -hmm. Tyranny of the computable means that I might want different data that I than I got. But I have this other data, so I'll do the best I can with it. Yeah, that is a very good expression. I've met that time and again since I started in 87 with the Oracle thing. Yeah. We may not have turned trace on, but we have these other data. Yeah. And you used the term a while ago, um, quote, more scientific in, in the context of we have more scientific ways than the old ratio way. I don't really view it as more scientific as much as I view it as simpler and more direct. Because here's what happened. A developer who wrote the kernel or that part of the kernel one day um, was either given a specification or came up with a specification that said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we knew how many writes the system had done? And when you're writing code, you're probably more thinking about benchmarks than you are thinking about so, you know, Alice running her business with this machine someday. So you either obeyed a spec that somebody gave you or you created a spec where you thought, you know, it'd be nice to know how many transactions have taken place over the last half hour. But it's as if nobody really thought until later, you know, it'd be nice to know how long that thing I just did took. And it'd be really nice to see a table of all the things that happened that made up that response time. And it's dimensional, well, yeah, it's, it's like a hypercube, you know, in a data warehouse where you say, you know, I'd like to be able to see that, that two minutes that this thing took based on which sequels did it run. I'd like to be able to spin the cube and I'd like to be able to see why did it take two minutes in terms of what operating system calls it made. So there might be different ways I want to see that two minutes because one way I look at it, it might go, oh, there's 20 things and they each took 5% apiece. But when you spin the cube and it says, ah, but if you look at it this way, this one thing is 97% of your time. Well, that's the way I want to attack the problem. I want to see, okay, can I cut that thing that spent 97% of my time in half? Can I make fewer calls to that thing so it doesn't need to spend as much time? And now we're off to the races in a totally different way than if you look at a system and Nancy's called you to complain, my thing takes two minutes, and you look at all your counts and say, well, it looks like my redo's good. It looks like my undo is good. looks like my CPU utilization is good. Nancy, I'm sorry, but I just can't see your problem. And that, and that's, exactly, that exactly is the answer you get even today, but also back when, when you ask the network guys. Right. <laughs> so what I want is just really simple. And I, you know, I love that you call it scientific, but I'm afraid that it turns people off. Because what I want is for people to go, yeah, I want the simple thing. If if we, we did a, a job at 7-Eleven, and I can mention their name because I, I did a presentation at a Dallas Oracle users group on stage with one of their people that I worked with. And they had a, an application that manages the ingredients they put in their food. They make cookies and brownies and sandwiches and all kinds of things that you expect at a convenience store. They make them themselves. 
And the computer program that prints that label that says, here's how much gluten and how many carbohydrates and how much protein and fat is in this candy bar, that's all printed by an Oracle-based program. And they had a function in that, in that application where a test chef who's inventing the next sandwich could do an inventory query for the different kind of cheeses that he has available to him. Right? They, these, these guys get like trained boxcars full of cheese. But they need to know, you know, how many different kinds of cheeses do I have to choose from as I invent this new sandwich? And searching for cheese took two minutes on an Exadata box. And it had for months in this project. <laughs> they were actually thinking about abandoning the project because searching for cheese took so long. Forget big data. We've got big cheese. Yeah. Yeah. And so these guys called us in and we were able... It took us about four hours because we did not have the tools that we do now. It would take 10 minutes now. In fact, we reproduced the problem. It took us 10 minutes. But it took us four hours a couple of years ago to find searching for cheese when we turned Trace on for their whole instance because they had all the problems you have. They have connection pooling. Everybody logs in as the same user ID. You know, all the standard things that makes tracing hard. Mm-hmm. So we just traced the whole system for a couple of minutes while searching for cheese took place. We finally found the data and we found exactly what was causing it to take two minutes. And after a couple of small parameter changes, we had it running in about 11 seconds. And then we noticed we can't make this go any faster unless we rewrite it. It was written really poorly. It did, it did the join outside the app thing where it, it, it does dynamic SQL generation based on the first query. You know, the first query returns 357 rows. And then for every row in the result set, it generates a new dynamic SQL statement with a hard-coded value in it and another statement, you know. So the thing ends up having a 1,000 parse calls trying to cram into 11 seconds. And we rewrote it, or we, Jeff and a colleague at 7-Eleven rewrote it, and it took less than half a second when they were done with it. And you're just not going to be able to do that with these V-dollar things. you just not. Yeah. Yeah, but it so, was clear to everybody. Even the non-technical people in the room knew exactly where the time was being spent. So let me um, let me elaborate a little on my use of the term scientific. Um, way back when I started preaching about this and traveling in the late nineties, traveling the world and, and talking about this shit, um, I would I would I would try to argue that if two knowledgeable persons, two experts, were presented with the same data and asked, what is the problem? Their answers should be pretty comparable. And with, with, uh, with reams of data and ratios, they never were. No. It was guesses. It was, it was grimaces. It was, uh, it, was, it was maybe this, maybe that. You're, and yeah, the root the root of the problem is that the process they use is non-deterministic. Exactly, and if you could make it deterministic, which is what you're doing, which is what we've been preaching and which we've been trying and and and, and exp- exploring in the last two hundred years or whatever it was since we met. Um, oh, I got a I got a joke for you, real fast. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Okay. A Mexican, a Russian, and a Dane look at some data, and they, huh, they came up with the same diagnosis. 
That's that's the joke because see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that that's never going to happen. That's <laughs> never going to happen. <laughs> Good thing you don't have a comedy show. Because <laughs> I don't think that would. I don't think that would pass. Uh, it would never comedy. No, no. But I okay. I will remind you one day in court. Please carry um, on. Yeah. So, so basically. That was that was basically my question about what can you discern from just having ratios in a system? Oh gosh. Well you can discern ratio things. You can you can say you can you can say throughput is you know forty-two transactions per second, for example. Um, you can measure that just fine. You can say things like of those forty-two transactions, you know, there were seventeen CPU seconds spent. So I'm going. I'm going to interrupt you right here rudely. Doesn't that mean that basically all you can do is say probably? Well, you can say definitely forty-two transactions completed in this second. I get it. Um, you would not be able, unless you collected more different data, to say things like, ah, but we have different kinds of transactions, and these transactions used. 17 seconds and those transactions only use three. Okay, well, we'll make another V dollar view for that. All right, well, now I can't see that of the transactions that consume three, maybe one of them consumed 2.9 and all the other executions combined only consumed 0.1. Oh, they're skew there too. Okay, we'll make another V dollar table. This is the problem with the with the ratio world. You you relate two statistics together because that's what a ratio is. It's a relation between two statistics. You have like, um, um, you know, number of rights per hour or something. The, the, those are the two statistics that I'm talking about. And the problem is that once you get that, you can ask a question that you won't be able to answer. And you have to go to another ratio to find the answer. Like, did they all take one second apiece or did one of them take 15 seconds and the others took 0.1 seconds? Mm-hmm. You, you just you have to keep going and going and you make these these longer and longer chains of inferences based on these numbers that you see that are not answer the, the fundamental problem is they're not answering the question you have, which is why did this execution of that thing take so long? And I don't even want to know what the average execution duration is. I want to know what that thing's that execution's duration was. And I want to know why that execution's duration was so much different from all the others. And if you do the ratio thing, you end up having an exponential explosion, like a combinatorial explosion of how many things you have to keep track of. And it's a combinatorial explosion, not just in the number of V dollar tables you have, but also in how much stuff you have to remember as a human to be able to use all of it. And the, the, the crazy thing is, look, I just want to see a list of what this did. And that's what trace data is. It's a list of what a thing did. And if you're given that list, you can say things like, wow, it shouldn't have done this. I could change the code a little bit, or I can change a parameter, or I can change how my disks are configured and make this much time go away. And the cool thing is you can tell how much time should should be taken out by executing that action. So you end up not even having to guess like, okay, the buying a new disk with lower latencies would cost half a million dollars. How many seconds will it save? If I do that, well, I, I can answer that. Oh, well, according to this list, 
you're doing 10 IOs and they're taking a second apiece. And if this new device can do them in half a second apiece, here's how many seconds you'll save. I truly love your uh, your sentence uh, uh, before about you can ask all the questions that you want, but it'll be hard to get the answers. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and you know what what software is is it's a it's a it's an idea of what we want encoded into instructions that a that an inanimate object that eats electricity. <laughs> Can, can do for us, can follow instructions for us. And what we have to decide is what do we want from this thing? And you know what I want? I want to know why something took how long it did. Because that's what people ask me when I walk in. It's like, you know, God damn it, you know, payroll. I go, okay, let's look at payroll. Let's not look at your whole entire system while it runs payroll. Let's look at what payroll does. And oh, payroll's doing this weird network thing. Do you realize that you can make this go twice as fast just by making a simple change in your sqlnet.ora file or tnsnames.ora file? It just, no matter where your problem is, it can't hide from you if you have a list of why something spent your time. So what do you think will be the future of instrumentation? Do you think that Salesforce, that that Linux, that um, some some other open source thing, whatever, will end up in the long run instrumenting their software so that you can tell where the time is spent. Well. You name some places that are a mixture of where they do and where they don't. Um, I don't know about SFA. I don't know about Salesforce. But I do know, for example, that Amazon does this. When, when I went to, um, Amazon has an annual symposium, basically, inside their walls where they, they invite speakers. And I've been up there a couple times to speak at their events. And I've, been, I, I've actually been there many, many years ago. Yeah, too. Commit, that, they call it that. Amazon Commit. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I gave a talk one time trying to inspire developers to instrument their code. And I got kind of the same reaction I got from the Danish audience the first time I spoke there. I, I, I wasn't sure how to read their faces. They weren't that excited looking. In the first break, I said, uh, "Doesn't I don't I can't tell if you're interested or or not." And I said, "No, the problem is we already do everything you're talking about." He said, <laughs> "There are a couple of ideas in there that, that we find interesting that we haven't considered before, so it's a good presentation. Thank you, but no, we pretty much do everything you're saying." Um, eBay too, PayPal too. So it's not that everybody doesn't; it's the ones that need to. Um, they they do it because they know how much it costs not to. Now you mentioned Linux. Linux has got D-Trace. Yeah, that's now, true. It's kind of, you know, not mainstream, but that's, you know, kind of, maybe it sounds cynical, but that's what keeps people's rates up is it's kind of hard and it's, it's a technology that not everybody knows how to do. I don't, but I, you know, I feel like it's something I could study for a while and go do an engagement a week. But I'm no Jared Jensen. You know, there's people out there 
that would be um, much faster at it than I would, but I'd be able to figure it out if, if I had to. Um, so I think I'm just looking at my bookshelf. I, I know Microsoft has their, um, what do they call it, system events that are built into their SQL Server database and also into their operating system. Data, manage, friend, data, data management views. I think our, our friend and, and so Mario Brubacher was kind of one of the experts in that domain. Yeah, and Mark Sousa also helped put in the data management views in SQL Server. Yeah, and, and I know nothing about them except I know that, or at least I've heard that they exist. Well, they never ever got accepted because there was a very, very large group of uh, very distinguished uh, partners and, and whatever that had already written the books and done the, done the speeches and, and things. And, and Microsoft never wanted to confront them with the fact that they had been doing it the wrong way all the time. And so after SQL Server 2008 and 2012 was instrumented with the DMVs, uh, they never really followed through, whereas Oracle did, partly, I think, due to some of our friends working internally on that yeah. thing. So their their manuals on SQL Server, for instance, never got, got adjusted. Hmm. So I think my answer is, oh, you know what? MH370. There's a Say seven what? MH370. There's a triple seven somewhere. Mm -hmm. It may be seven miles underwater, or it may be in some <laughs> some spy hangar someplace. <laughs> right? The, the problem with, with that Malaysian flight that disappeared that had uh, right. the son of right. one of my right. friends. You're on right. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an instrumentation problem. Mm-hmm. They have just enough data to tantalize them into searching in a certain place, but they don't have enough. And so now what are what are the airlines in, in Boeing and Airbus doing, right? They're they're talking about, well, we should have better instrumentation on the plane. Why is the black box stored on the plane instead of in the cloud, for example? Yeah. Why do and why is this a thing we for well, airplanes, it should be I in know. the cloud. <laughs> it should be in the clouds already. But it should stay in the cloud and not accompany the aircraft to the controlled flight into terrain. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so instrumentation is a thing that people people do talk about and they're aware of. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a software is our servant, but it will only do what we ask it to do. And if we figure out that, oh, yeah, we can have it tell us where this, uh, you know, nearly billion-dollar airframe is with, with 400 people on it, that would be nice to know instead of, you know, being engulfed in a mystery that may not get solved in our lifetime. Many, many, many years ago, I was in a position, which I'm not in today, definitely, but I was back then where I asked an extremely rich woman, in Denmark, what are the uh, what should I know before I hire a private driver to drive me around? And she said the hardest thing is to not feel sorry for the driver and invite him into the lunch with the friends, or you know, allow him to this and that, but just tell him what to do. The hardest thing about having a servant for any human being 
is telling them what to do. And maybe we have the similar problem with, with software. We really have a hard time telling it what to do. We might, but I think it's for different reasons. Because I can assure you, I talk to Siri in a manner that I would never talk to a human. Um, <laughs> I, hope nobody's, I hope nobody's keeping track of the horrific things that I say when I get angry. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah. but I, I don't know. I might, I might could argue to the contrary that, that it's easier to tell a machine what to do because it doesn't have a face and it doesn't have feelings and it doesn't have kids that it has to go home to at night and look like a failure in front of. And, you know, it's just, it's this, it's this inert is not the right word, but it's, it's, it's a machine that we can use however we would like. And I, part of the thing is, I think that people here it is here, here it is. I'm looking at another book. No, I'm not. I'm, I thought I was, but I don't see it. There's a book called The Design of Everyday Things. Oh, it's because I loaned it to my mom by a guy named Don Norman, I believe is his name. And on the cover is a teapot that has the both the spout and the handle on the same side of the teapot. Yeah. And as, as soon as you notice what's going on, you're like, oh, my God, that teapot would burn me so bad. I would never be able to use it. It's a poorly designed teapot. And his book is about how designers interface with the things that they make. And it's the same relationship I'm talking to you about. When you design something, you, you need to have purpose in mind. And then you need to be able to, to, to force the thing you're creating to serve that purpose. That's what design is. And so if you design a door and it looks like it's got a pull handle on it, but you're supposed to push, then you're going to notice all sorts of people, smart people and dumb people are going to look at your door and go without even realizing it. They're going to process this subconsciously. They're going to say, oh, that looks like a pull handle. So I'll pull. And then they're going to look like an idiot if it's a push door and it's not their fault. It's the fault that you camouflage the door, the door to make it look like a pull door. So a designer needs to know these things about how their stuff gets used and, and not make mistakes of tricking people into thinking that doing this will, will, you know, do something different than what they expect. And one of the things that people just don't get is most people are, most people are poor designers. And, and one thing that people who make software just don't think of unless they've run a system before is, Hey, I need this thing to tell me why it takes two minutes to search for cheese in case it ever happens. I wrote probably the most interesting thing that I've written in the last couple of years is just stupid little check for updates feature for our product. It's a PHP program that runs at our methodr.com website. And you send it, hey, I have this version of this software. Is there a newer one available? That's what it does. And I wrote this one morning. I remember I was, I was visiting my mom in Oklahoma and I was sitting at her table, her dining room table, writing code. And I didn't know how to write any of this, but I knew the algorithm I was going to use. I was like, okay, open a directory, look in the directory, read all the file names, see all the file names that have the certain pattern. And now see if this part of the file name has a number in it that's bigger than that thing that I got passed in. And I basically just wrote that. I wrote a bunch of printfs. And I made a flag. If I, if I called check for updates, ampersand, you know, something equal true, then it would turn trace on. 
and I could see every single step. And then I just wrote one step. I wrote the open a directory. I'd look up in PHP, how do you open a directory? Okay, I'll write that. All right. Then I'll then I'll write out the names of the files that I find. Are they all there? Okay, cool. I just tested my code, it's good. I'll turn, you know, and, and I do this this trace mechanism and then I fill in the blanks writing the code. And then at the end of it, I basically can prove that my code's working properly by turning the trace on. And then I I, I run operational queries. The product calls that web page with that trace thing turned off and it gets exactly the answers it needs back. And now if I ever need to go debug it, I don't have to put any printfs in it because they're already there. And so getting in the habit of writing code like that only happens because I've run code like that because I'm the user too. And I don't look at PHP every day. And in a year when I have to come figure out why the hell is check for updates broken, I want to make it easy on my future self so I can just come in and see, oh, step four. Step four is where it's broken. So basically expecting future issues. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not. I'm not to say there's an expression called boiling the ocean. I'm not, I'm not trying to solve every future issue, but at least the obvious ones. And I know. I know that um, in the future, things are going to go wrong. And by the way, it's it's it was a nice way for me to write the code too, because I need to kind of prove to myself that the code's working along the way. And so if I throw off this information to the side, in addition to the information to standard output that I need, then I can make myself a lot more informed and a lot more comfortable about how my code's working. But knowing what it's like to run a system informs you about what kinds of things you'd like to put in the system. Because, I mean, I could have... I could maybe inspire a college kid to write that same thing and tell him about one, the wonders of instrumentation. And I might get back 25,000 lines of code. And that's a mistake too. I don't need that much instrumentation. I just need the right amount of instrumentation. And the right amount is really, who knows what the right amount is? And the answer is the person who runs that software for years and years and years. Yeah, the deep knowledge thing. Yeah. And so you have to know what you want and what you want has to be the right thing. And it's just hard. You know, that's why Don Norman has a, a high, a high rate and writes books. And, and that's why, you know, I think that's why Apple outsells the, the, the Android phones is because I think they're better designed. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're really good at it. Now, Johnny Ive, I designed beautiful things, but I sure hated the keyboard he designed. It's as if somebody designed a keyboard who never, learn how to type. I totally I, agree. I couldn't type on the damn thing. Um, but, but the new one's good. And the fact that they admitted that the old one wasn't and it needed improvement makes it, it gives me, uh, it restores some of my faith in Apple again. Mm -hmm. but there, it comes down to design and, and, you know, what features will help the person using your thing if you put those features in. And that's, that's how we think. And, you know, I think the reason our profiler is so good and, and our software does what it does is because Jeff and I are also the users of it. And so when we use it and notice that, wow, I wish we had a tool that told us what line, what time it is when this line of trace data was emitted. Well, we create a ticket and build it. We wouldn't have even known that such a thing were needed if we didn't have users tell us that. And we just happen to be our own users. So it, it, it makes the communication that much easier. So what would, um, I guess we've talked, of course, uh, a lot about instrumentation. We've talked a little bit about the future 
of instrumentation, namely people should do it. <laughs> uh, they should do it, of course, in this uh, indeterminable right amount and, and all that stuff based on well, experience. And, and, and here's where I put my commercial advertisement in, into, into action and say, if you need help doing this, this is something that, that Jeff and I, for example, know how to do. But what is your and Jeff's plans for the future? What are your plans? Mm-hmm. And I mean both in the um, in the detailed way in what 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 would you love to do with your your product, but also in a broader sense, instrumentation yeah. for the world, because. If software is eating the world, instrumentation should be everywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it it would be a, a very fun project, as I said earlier, to uh, to go instrument something new. We've we've got work to do here. We've got a new release of the software that I've been describing. Um, that's pretty much ready to go. I th- guess today's January 27th and it's probably we just have to decide when to release it we've we've done a little bit of beta work we're not sure we've done enough with it but once that's out we've got something to um, to support and sell and use in projects and so for the the near term and I'm hoping this is few years uh, is, is my definition of near term we will we will make money on the investment that we've made into the product that we've built. As that, um, as that goes, that's a parameter to our plan. If we, if we do really well with this release of the software and make enough money that, that, that we like, um, you know, not having to do anything else, then we'll support this product and do projects with it and, and sell the software. And that's, that's good work. We, we enjoy doing that kind of work. Um, if at some point it becomes really lucrative for us to, um, in addition to supporting this stuff, or maybe we can sell it to somebody who will support it. Cause Jeff and I love the invention part of the process more than the kind of the routine day to day operation of it. We, we are, are very happy having a hard problem that you write software to solve and then going and working together to design something and build it and test it and, then use it a few times to make sure that it's going to help people the way we want to help people. That's, that's what we want to do over and over. I think both of us probably for the rest of our lives. And so anywhere we can do that, it's going to be, it's going to be good. So I've given you a parameterized plan. If, if our software does well, we'll stay at it. If it, if it doesn't do well, then we're going to have to figure out something to do. I can't imagine retiring. And, uh, (laughs) So my plan is to keep working on interesting software problems for the foreseeable future. But you are, you are sort of hooked on performance and instrumentation and measuring correctly, aren't you? It's fun. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I'm not saying it's the only thing I would do. It might be fun trying to figure out how to solve problems with putting people in space. Um, I don't know if we would get hired by an organization doing that because of our lack of experience putting people into space, but, um, I just like interesting problems and certainly, you know, my background and 
things things that I would bring to the table on day one uh, certainly lie in the performance and and software domain. Where is the time spent in space, for instance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On on the way to um, <laughs> on the way to Mars or whatever. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, I think genetically I'm kind of an optimizer. When I look at all my hobbies, um, the things that I do are mostly optimizer things. You know, I bought a I bought a tool the other day and I took it out of the package and was like, oh, I love this tool. And then I turned the knobs and I went, ew. And it was two aluminum knobs that screw against a spring into an aluminum plate. And so every time you screw or unscrew, there's going to be a little bit of aluminum that's going to fall off the threads of that joint and it took me a, a day and a half, but that's basically how I spent last weekend was figuring <laughs> out, okay, how do I make, how do I make the right things steel so that there's no aluminum on aluminum friction? And anyway, I, I went out to my, to my lathe in the shop and I made a thing that optimized the tool I'd bought. And that's, <laughs> that's how I spend my time. Even my free time as I optimize things. You don't like waste. Do you? Yeah, I'm just I'm compulsive. I don't like badly designed things either. And compulsive, which, compulsive waste disorder. <laughs> compulsive waste removal disorder. Compulsive optimization disorder. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's surely a sickness. But hopefully, yeah. a sickness that can be exploited for good. I think it has helped many, many people. How? So uh, you might be embarrassed by my last question, but I'll ask it anyway. How many copies of your books have have been sold? That's a tricky question because my uh, I asked my editor that Jonathan Ginnick at the time was at O'Reilly, and I asked him, and he said, "Yeah, it's really hard to know because the the different distribution channels. There's not one app that counts everything. Well, do, do they burn books they don't sell, or how how come they don't know?" Yeah, they do some weird thing of tearing the covers off. And yeah, they kind of do. They kind of do burn them when they don't sell them. They don't count them or something. Anyway, yada, yada, yada. I think somewhere between fifteen and 20,000. Okay. Cool. Not bad. I don't now, know why I think that. I don't remember why I think that, but I think that's the number that I was ultimately given as a, as a right. wild guess. When I post this um, uh, this interview, I will point at your website, your various resources, the Gold Rat um, mm -hmm. book, and things like that. Are there any other uh, resources I should I should point at, or that people should know about? I mean, I'm thinking about your blog, some of your papers. Yeah, I love a few. If you uh, pointed to the blog, by the way, the blog's got more than a million hits now on it. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? It's like a million 60,000 or something. And I haven't oh. posted to it in a year. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. And, and, and oh, what that. about the SlideShare thing you mentioned? Is that, is that oh, part of the blog? Yeah, that's part of, um, I think you get to that now by LinkedIn. Okay, Carrie, I think you need to send me. Yeah, it sounds like. <laughs> Sound do me a favor because yeah. i think you have a list uh, <laughs> if you'll send me what you've got i'll fill it yeah in i will i will do that carrie thank you so much 
for uh, spending this one hour and almost 40 minutes. It's been a lot of about performance. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.